Kids, you can head downstairs now if you like. Long time ago, there was a radio competition, competition on the radio, where they asked for suggestions to be made, and if you were one of the lucky people that had the right suggestion at the right time, and once a week, they gave out $500 worth of cash price. And so I thought this would be pretty cool. So I said to all my mates, I'm going to win the 500 bucks because I like a bit of a challenge. And mates being mates, they did what all good mates should do. They spoke a lot of unbelief and belittlement. They ribbed me. There's no way, Ralph, you're going to be able to do it on my but I've got a strategy. And my strategy was that I brainstormed all the things that their radio station could do better. And so I came up with a list of 30, and they only asked for one. So I thought, I'm just going to go like the shotgun approach, you know, the shotgun pellets. So I threw these 30 suggestions at them, and two weeks later, the phone rings, it's the radio station, I'm live on air, and I pocket $500. Come on. And so be sure, I, the first person I called, people I called were my mates. Guess what's just happened? And it's going to be on the radio station. You want to listen to this and, and, and get in on that. But something else also happened in the process of me winning. I was drawn into the vision of the radio station. I became a more loyal listener. I found I was telling more people that you need to listen to this radio station because now it's come really good because it's had some amazing suggestions made. The more I experienced being part of it, the more I was drawn in to the vision. You see, experience is the gateway into belonging to a vision. And we're going to look over the next number of instances, over the next few weeks, where people experienced Jesus' vision and were drawn into it. They encountered Christ, they met Jesus, and their life was transformed, and they were, they were brought in to this vision Jesus was casting. Jesus' vision had a name. It was a name that the Bible calls the kingdom of God. So when you hear the phrase kingdom of God, when you read it in the scriptures, it's talking about the vision Jesus had for all of humanity, a vision that he invites everybody into. Scott McKnight said what Jesus called the kingdom of God, Paul called the church. That's interesting, isn't it? So we are living in the vision of Jesus. We are living in the kingdom of God. This morning you are in the kingdom of God. The church is what the current status of Jesus' vision looks like. That's quite sobering, isn't it? Last week, we looked at who Jesus was. We looked at how his fingerprints have covered the world that we know. Everything from education to healthcare, from the arts to technological inventions, to Dom Perignon champagne, that without Christians, the world would not have it. But today, we're going to experience Jesus firsthand. And I'm going to invite Riley to come up, and Riley's going to read to us one of the stories of Jesus that we're going to dwell in and sit in today. Thanks, Riley. So I'll be reading John 8, 1 to 10. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple court where all the people gathered around him. 
and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman brought in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to him, Let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go on one at a time, the old ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, and neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life in sin. Thanks, Riley. In the ancient culture, the rabbis, did you see that they sat down to teach? You know what everybody else had to do while the rabbi was sitting down? Stand up. Should we do that? Just for half an hour. It'd be great. I'll just take a load off. Lucky some things have changed, right? Jesus was a rabbi. His, his role, his goal, everything was to teach the Old Testament scriptures in such a way that they would make sense to the current culture so that people would obey God. It's what a rabbi did. It's thought that the Sermon on the Mount wasn't only preached on that mountainside, but the Sermon on the Mount that we have included other teachings that came from moments like this, where Jesus imparted his wisdom about who God was and how people could love God. And so Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees are there. Now, the Pharisees were a Jewish sect. They only came into existence 150 years before Jesus. So they were quite recent on the scene when you think about a Pharisee. They believed in purity for all Jews. They believed that fate was a key part of free will. And they believed the resurrection from the dead. And they also believed equally in what was called the oral law. Jesus and the rabbis taught what was written in the law, but the Pharisees would rely on the oral traditions of the law. So the Pharisees dragged this woman who had just been caught in the act of adultery, and she now becomes the object of a lesson. In verse 4, they start with this word, teacher. That's not said in the heart of, oh, teacher. It's you think you're a teacher? Work this one out. They were trying to discredit Jesus to his audience that were listening that way, and they start by mocking him. They don't call him rabbi. They should have. They call him teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they're quite right. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, both say that the woman should be killed. But they also both say that who else should be killed? The bloke. Where's, where's the man? Where's, where's the man in, in the story? What, what, what's going on? If a man, this is what Leviticus 20, 10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, 
with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. The onus of the law is on the man before it's on the woman. Where's the bloke? She was just caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act. Where's the guy? Where's the guy? The Pharisees let the man go. Exactly. Which means, which means they themselves are falling short of the law. Because the law requires the man to answer for those sins. So they are falling short of the law by not presenting the man as well. According to the law, they are now in a wrongful position, as wrong as the woman caught in adultery. But they're not concerned about that at all. You see, they were overlooking their own sin to accuse someone else of their sin. They are actually sinning in order to accuse somebody else of their sin. They are terrible people, because we would never do that, would we? Like, well, not really. We'd, we'd never find ourselves bending a truth when we relay it to another person in order to vent a little bit of our frustration. We'd never do that. Or, or gossiping about someone because they did or said something we didn't like, that we wouldn't, the Pharisees would do that, right, but not us. Or, or using some information we've inaccurately um, have to achieve our own end. Or taking a soundbite of what someone said and leaving the context behind and using that against them. We'd never do that, but those Pharisees, oh, nasty pieces of work, those Pharisees. Do you see how easy it is for us, all of us, to live with the same heart as the Pharisees and not recognize it? The sin of pride, it holds us back from being a channel of God's grace. C.S. Lewis calls pride the essential vice of the utmost evil. He asserts that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. I mean, only C.S. Lewis could say that. He's like, oh, that's strong words. Because pride blinds us, causing us to put to death wonderful things of God without even realizing it. Now, bonus points if you can tell me who this person is. Anyone know? All right, I'm going to tell you who it is, and if you got it right, it's just a, a bit of trust exercise here. Just put up your hand if you got it right. His name is Leonard Bernstein. Sandra, oh, well done. Oh, good job. So Leonard Bernstein, or it might be Bernstein. Bernstein, Bernstein. Bernstein, good. I'll stick with my first one. He was one of the greatest American composers and famous for which musical? Oh, Josie, straight to the top, West Side Story. And he was once asked, in all of your orchestra and all of the instruments that are played, what is the hardest instrument to play? He thought about it. He said, it's second violin. He said, second violin? What's, what's the difference between second violin and first violin? He says, well, it's not so much that the instrument's hard to play, but it's hard to play as second string because everybody wants to be first string. But finding an excellent second string is essential 
because they carry the melody. Without the second string, no one gets to enjoy the music. Part of us wants to be first string. And God calls us to be his second string. Pride causes us to miss out on the music God is composing. In each of us, in every single one of us, is a prideful heart of a Pharisee, which Jesus can put to death. Jesus can finish for us. But equally, in each of us, is the shame of the adulterous woman. Can you imagine the humiliation she experienced? Just put yourself in her mind just for a moment. Dragged out of a bed that she had no business in ever being in, before a crowd of strangers and the religious elite, to be an object lesson in a sermon with no defense, no chance to defend. The guy has vanished. Her adultery was a devastating decision, and as a result, she's in a devastating experience. Now, just think for yourself, just the last week, the last seven days, that's all we're talking about. What if, just for your last week, we could somehow transmit onto our screen a list of all the sins you've committed? Uh, you get nervous. We can't do it. We don't have the technology or desire to. It's okay. It's okay. Last seven days. What if your sin could be put on? What if every sinful thought, every action toward another, every skerrick of bitterness that is in you and unforgiveness towards somebody else, what if it was all thrown on the screen for all of us to see? Who would want that? Who would want that? Funnily enough, if your answer is, I'm up for that, you've just identified the pride in your heart. That's a win. But most of us, we do all we can to keep our sin hidden. I just don't want people to know how truly bad I actually am. Because we're ashamed of it. And we're meant to be ashamed of our sin. The worst case scenario in life is that others would see how rotten and bad and evil and messy and dysfunctional we are. But Paul says to the church that he writes to in 1 Timothy, he says, here's a trustworthy saying. It's an interesting thing for Paul to say, isn't it? You can trust this. What's coming? You can trust it. In fact, it deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst. The Apostle Paul was like next to Jesus. We are here today because the Apostle Paul, and he's like, uh, you line up all the sinners in all the world, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. So this idea that we are spiritually broken and decrepit and rotten without Christ is something we can totally trust, we can totally accept. It is the truth that without Jesus we are lost. But then he makes us feel okay. He's like, but we're all in the same boat. Even me, I'm the worst of all of you. And this woman is thrown before strangers with her sins laid bare and she is literally in the hands of Christ. What does Jesus do? Now we experience Jesus with pride-filled hearts which causes us to tear others down and also with hearts that are filled with shame that causes us to want to run away 
from Jesus. Because we feel facing Jesus with our sin is too hard. How will he truly react? When I was, um, when I was at school, I got in a little bit of an altercation with this kid who was just not a good kid. Actually, I wasn't a good kid either. But we got in this little bit of altercation, and I, I, I promise you, it was like a fairy push. I hardly touched him at all, but he somehow launched from where he was standing and slid across the table in the classroom and fell over the other side of the table. And upon his demise on the other side of the table was the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen. The teacher standing behind him who saw everything. I am so busted. I'm so busted. So I was in the hands of Mrs. Bartley. That's right. It's the profound impact she had on my life. I still remember her name and what she looks like in that moment that is etched into my soul forever. I was in the hands of Miss Bartley and Miss Bartley had a choice. She could have done, should have done what she, any reasonable person would have done and come up to me and just said, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. It would have been a good week if that had happened. What actually happened was what followed was the worst week of my nine-year-old life easily. And there's a ton of other illustrations to pack into that that I won't waste this morning. But I was sent to the principal's office. Now, funny side story, I'm part of the PNC at the school. I still have a little bit of, every time I walk into Peter's office, the principal, he's like, come into my office. I'm like, nah, 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 let's go outside. I don't want to go back in the office. He's even got a framed cane. I'm like, oh, you're really trying to just torment there. That's how we think about Jesus. That Jesus sees our sin and says, I'm going to march you into God's office and he's going to deliver a punishment for you. That's how it's going down. And so we want to hide our sin. We get ashamed of our sin. We keep our sin to ourselves as much as we can. We say, my sin's not that bad and surely God can't even see it. The holy God of the Bible says your sin is bad. It is very bad very, very bad, and it doesn't matter if it's a tiny bit or a whole heap, it's all bad. And because of it, we become bad, except through Christ, who makes us good. The problem is our sin, it holds us away from Jesus. We don't want to go near Jesus because we think Jesus is like Miss Bartley. Sorry, Miss Bartley, I know you're a lovely lady, um, who, who takes us to God in punishment. So we get scared of Jesus. And so so we go, I'm going to hide it. We think we can hide our sin from Jesus. He is like this, the sin thermostat, the thermometer. He, he knows the sin that is in us and died to rescue us from that. He gave his life so that I could give him my sin and be free. So there's some good news in all of this. Jesus' vision for us is far superior than our pride and our shame. Jesus' vision is greater than all of our pride and all of our shame. One of the cultural values in this church is to be a caring church and to be a daring, sharing and caring community with Jesus. We are to care about the things that God cares about. God cares most about people. God cares for a lot of things, but most, top of the list, 
his people, and God cares that they belong to him and to his kingdom, which is the church, right? That's an utmost care of God. But equally, pride and shame, they are enemies of belonging. You feed your pride, you will struggle to belong. You hide your shame, you will struggle to belong to the kingdom of God. It just will be hard. But watch what Jesus does. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, this, this kind of sentence that stopped the world from turning, listen to this, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Do you see, in, in one question, he humbles the proud and redeems the shamed. It's incredible. Like, what? Those who were proud actually had to look at their own sin and be humbled by it. And those who were full of shame were saved, saved from this fate of, of death. And then he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? <laughs> no one, sir. Then neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. He is saying to those who are riddled with shame, I'm the only one who can condemn you, and I choose to free you. You are free from your shame in Christ. You see, when he, when he humbles the proud, we realize our sin, and then he sets us free. There's hope for all of us. We condemn ourselves, but there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Our pride, it leaves us to condemn others because we can't handle it. <laughs> and so we condemn others and it spills out as we hurt and attack and put down and say things behind others' back and, and lie and gossip and all that. That's just this pride of saying, I have it all together, but nobody else does. And we, we think God wants to do the same, but God wants to free us. God is not like us. Jesus is in the business of freeing us. And it seems almost too good to be true, doesn't it? And that's exactly right. It is too good to be true. God is too good to be true. Jesus is too good to be true. What? Who is this man? He is the only one that can save us from the things that we simply cannot escape regardless of the self-development we try and do. We can't get away from our shame. We can't get away from our pride. And Jesus says, I can get you away from that. I will save you from it, where we can live in a world, live a life where we can, we can pray instead of gossip, where, where instead of letting it feed our inner darkness, we can come before Jesus, where instead of holding a grudge, we can forgive, where instead of judging others, we can examine our own hearts, where instead of distancing ourselves from a church and from Jesus, we are caused to run toward it because Jesus is the only one who can save. And this is where he does it in his kingdom, in his church. And so I thought today we'd do something a little bit different. We create some space for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to, to minister to us. And so Bruce is going to bless us. Bruce, if you'd like to, to come up, Bruce is going to play some music. 
We're going to create an atmosphere where you have several options. You can sit and reflect on these questions or anything else. You can just be in your seats and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you and to help you and to minister to you this morning. We're going to have our Fiona's, our team of Fiona's, are going to come over to the prayer corner. And if you would like prayer, you can just wander over to them and they will pray for you about whatever you'd like. Sometimes, sometimes sin requires, it, it requires confessing. In fact, all sin requires confessing. But sometimes it's helpful to do it to another person that's safe. And so I'm just going to sit at the front. And if you want to come and talk to me about any of this stuff that's happening for you, I would love to just to hear what you have to say and to pray for you in that. Well, you can talk to the person next to you. You can walk across the room to someone God might be leading you toward to bless or to help them. And we're going to spend about 10 minutes doing this. And if you're thinking, ah, oh, it's out of my comfort zone, that's okay. Just sit and be blessed by the music. But also realize that sometimes shame and sometimes pride are the reasons we can't get out of our seat to move to where God wants us to go. And so your defeating of those things is actually to move into where God wants you. So I'm going to pray to open this time together. We'll spend 10 minutes while Bruce plays, and then I'm going to pray to bring it to a conclusion. And if you need more ministry afterwards, please uh, don't, don't hold back from that. But let's um, move into this space now. Loving God, come. Holy Spirit, be amongst us. Minister to us. Help us to see our pride and confess it. Help us to offer you our shame that you might take it from us and restore us, Lord. And so minister to us in this space, we pray.